0: The title of my sermon, as you'll see behind me, is More Than a Handout. More than a Handout. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23, so you might want to start turning there right now. A handout. What's a handout? Well, as we were driving back on our trip to Mexico, the men uh, inevitably, we came to the border, and At the border, if any of you have ever been on the Mexico side crossing into the United States, that is quite a sight. Uh, As you wait in the line, some of us waited an hour, Uh, Pastor Archer's car happened to cross the wrong border so they had to wait two hours, (laughs) Um, but as you wait in line, there are street vendors everywhere. You, You are literally parked in your car traveling at... 0.1 miles per hour, and and there are street vendors walking up and down your car, selling everything. They're selling corn, they're selling churros, they're juggling, they're selling paintings and, and vases and all sorts of things. But there are another kind of people group as well as you're crossing the border. And they are the ones that break your heart because they're the beggars. They are the ones who, usually a mom with her children, are sitting beside your car with their hand out. And we would drive by quite a few of them as we were crossing last night. And it it really did break our hearts to see such poverty and to see so many needing a hand, if you will. But you know, a handout is called such because it only provides temporary relief. A handout only provides temporary relief. What, one thing that a handout does not do is it has little, if any, lasting significance. The token dollar or five dollar bill that we might hand uh, to that beggar as we cross the border will we'll have some temporary relief. Um, the beggar will perhaps be able to buy some food with it and perhaps be able to live um, and be sustained another day. And that is important. But a handout, by its very nature, is not something that is going to have lasting significance. It is simply a day-to-day kind of thing. And in Philippians 4, Paul is going to be talking about a gift that the Philippian church has given him. And this gift that they've given him is so much more than just a handout. It is so much more than than just a token gift that we might give to one who is begging on the street corner. Paul is going to say, as we conclude our study in Philippians today, he's going to say, you did so much more than a handout toward me and toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of our study today. As I mentioned, we're going to be concluding Philippians. So we're going to be reading a chunk of Scripture today, 13 verses. But nevertheless... Uh, We will be able to get through this, and I think we're going to learn something from this. Take a look at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. It says this, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need... For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the Gospel... When I departed from Macedonia, no church, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we look into your word and we see so much more than a handout. We see something of lasting significance, a lasting partnership between the Philippians and between the Apostle Paul, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may we learn from this final text in our study. May we continue to pull out principles and applications which we can resonate with and apply in our daily lives. We ask Your Spirit to be especially enlightening our eyes as we read the text today. Your Scriptures, in Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 10. Let's take it verse by verse. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. This word for uh, flourished again, right off the bat. Paul uses a word here that is unique to all of the, all of the scriptures. He never uses it elsewhere, nor does anyone else. Uh, this word is actually more of a, an agrarian type word from agriculture. It means to spring up, to sprout up. And Paul is saying here in the, in the New King James, we see the word flourish again. Elsewhere you might see revived. What Paul's indicating here is that it sprung up because it had happened in the past and now it's happening again. You see, the Philippians were notorious, if you will, for their giving, for their support of Paul. And Paul here is saying, your care has flourished again. It has sprung up again. And for that, I am grateful, Paul says. And I rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is always the object of His joy. He says, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. You lacked opportunity. Now, what might Paul have meant when he says that they lacked opportunity? In the original language, this word for lacked opportunity is actually to have no opportunity. In in other words, they didn't have an opportunity to spring up this gift, which we are later going to see is a gift of financial partnership with Paul. Why didn't they have this opportunity? Well, we can only speculate. There are some that suggest that perhaps they weren't immediately aware of Paul's situation in Rome. They didn't have email back in the first century. And mail took some time. And so, it, you know, it didn't show up on their screen that news flashed Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. He needs help. They didn't know right away. And so some suggest that perhaps Paul, perhaps the Philippian church did not know that Paul was in dire straits. Others suggest that they didn't have perhaps the money. The Philippian church, we're going to see a little bit later on, though located in a very affluent society, the Philippians themselves, were actually, it was suggested in Second Corinthians that they actually did not have a lot of money. In fact, that they were somewhat in a poverty situation. Third, some suggest that perhaps they had trouble finding a messenger to go to Paul. You see, when they sent Epaphroditus, it was just like when we send our missionaries. When they sent Epaphroditus, their messenger, perhaps an elder in their church, to go from Philippi all the way to Rome... That took money. That took funds. And the church had to support Epaphroditus on his journey, which was by no means a a journey that that required little money. It required great money. And as we send our missionaries out, we supply them with funds. So also, it may have been difficult for them to send a messenger to Paul. So Paul says, but you had no opportunity. I understood that it took some time for you to give me this gift. Whatever the reason... And we really, we're just speculating here. We don't know the reason. But for whatever the reason it was, the Philippians surely did care for Paul. They just had no opportunity previously to show it. Verse 11. Paul says this Not, not that I speak in regard to need or to poverty. Not that I speak in regard to need or my poverty. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. Paul is not needy. Paul is not needy here. He is not coming to the Philippians and saying, oh, woe is me. Look at my impoverished situation. I surely need any support you can give me right now. No, Paul is not being needy. He is not the kind of person uh, who is constantly asking and asking and asking them for funds. He, so he says, Not that I speaking in regard to my poverty, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Content. Now that is an interesting word there. Notice in yellow the word content. We see a word here that uh, is somewhat, I would argue, mistranslated in English. Because the word in Greek actually means to be self-sufficient. It means more the idea of to be independent or to be resourceful on your own. And we see the word content up there. We might get the the notion that Paul means to say that I'm happy whatever the circumstances are. Well, that is true. Paul elsewhere suggests that, that we are to be content. We are to be happy regardless of the life situation that we find ourselves in. But that's not the word in mind here. The word in mind here is Paul saying, I've learned in whatever situation to be self-sufficient, to be independent, to not need to be relying on the gift of the Philippians. And I liken this uh, maybe a little bit um, to riding a bike when we are kids. How many of you have ever trained your child to ride a bike? Raise your hand if you trained your child to ride a bike. Okay, many of you did. My dad trained me to ride a bike, and he was very careful. He made sure... My dad was always a very cautious man when it comes to me and my sister. He was always very protective. And so whenever we would learn to ride a bike or do anything that was dangerous, we would do it on the grass. He would take us to a park, and he'd say, Okay, let's let's try to ride it again here. We, we have the training wheels on, and now we're going to try to take off the training wheels, and we're going to try to ride. And as a kid... I always was one step ahead of my father saying, no, no, I can do it. I can do it on my own. Stop holding the bike. Stop holding my seat. I want to do it on my own. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. That, that is what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, I don't want you to th- feel like you're holding the bike. That you need to be right behind me, supporting me at all times, so that I can continue on in my journey. Paul says, no, no, no. The training wheels are off. I thank you for the gift, but I am self-sufficient. I am on this journey and I am able to be resourceful, able to provide for my needs. Now what you see, you see a little bit of color up here. Notice the contrast. And the colors aren't showing up very well. But in red, we see some of the negative life situations that Paul finds himself in. In the purple, which is quite faint, you see abound, full, and abound. So he's contrasting here. He's saying in the basis of circumstances and in the greatest of circumstances. In the times that are most difficult, hunger, need. And in the times that are... Most easy, if you will, when I abound, when I am full. He says, in all of those, I am self-sufficient. Now, the word again, going back to content, that word self-sufficient, was very popular in Greek philosophy as well. And during the time that Paul is writing this, this word uh, really meant to, to be on your own. I'm independent. I'm by myself. I don't need any help. And we might immediately think that's that's what Paul has in mind, and he does to an extent. But now comes a very, very great qualification of that statement. Paul is not going to say, I am on my own completely. That was from Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, they said, to be content, to be self-sufficient, that is ideal. And Paul says, yes, it is ideal. But I'm going to qualify what I just said. Look at how he qualifies this. By verse 13. Notice verse 13. He says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is that statement? That's a statement of dependence. That's not a statement of independence. That's a statement of dependence. And so we have this, almost this, this diametrically opposed passage. On the one hand, in verse 11, he says, I am self-sufficient, thank you for your gift, but I'm on my own. And I appreciate it. But, but I'm going to be resourceful, I'm going to be self-sufficient. And then in verse 13, he goes on to say, But I can only do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But see, for Paul, this is not a paradox. For Paul, this is not a paradox. In fact, he calls it the secret, if you will. He has learned the secret. In verse 12, when you see the word learned from... <clears throat> verse 12, when he says this, "...everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry." What he means to say there is he's is, I've learned the secret of. I've learned the secret. That to be self-sufficient, to be on my own is to be utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. To be self-sufficient, to be on my own, is to be utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. Very much like when we read in our, in our Scriptures that Paul welcomes weakness because in his times of weakness, what does it say? The power of Christ rests on him most. In his times of weakness that is when Jesus Christ shines through Paul all the more. And so I've listed a little summary statement up there. It's as if Paul is saying this, I have learned to accept and to cope with anything that happens to me by living in the strength that Christ provides. That is what Paul means here. He's not suggesting that he can do anything. He's suggesting that I can deal with anything, both when I am abounding and when I am in need, both when I am fed and when I am hungry, I can do all things. I can accept and cope with those things if and only if I am living in the strength that is provided by Jesus Christ. As one theologian put it, he said, the secret of Paul's independence was to be dependent upon another. Let me say that again. The secret of Paul's independence was to be dependent upon another. Of course, Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 14. Paul says, Nevertheless, now he goes back to the gift. And he says, Nevertheless, you have done well. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. You'll notice in yellow, uh, Paul here is using financial language. He's indicating that they were the only ones who supported him in giving and receiving. That they were the ones who sent aid to him when he was on his journeys in Thessalonica and elsewhere. This is very reminiscent of what he says at the very start of the book of Philippians. Take a look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. At the very start of the book, notice what he says. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Philippians, always remembering, excuse me, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for what? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That word fellowship there, primarily Not exclusively, but primarily refers to funding, to financial partnership. Paul's saying, thank you for the gift. Back in chapter 1, and he concludes his letter as we're concluding it today. Thank you for the gift. But as I said, suggested earlier, the Philippians were not necessarily a people group who were in a wealthy situation. In fact, uh, it's, Paul suggests in 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to see it in just a moment, that the Philippians were in fact somewhat in poverty. Take a look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about their situation. He says, We make known to you the grace of God, right into the church at Corinth, bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now primarily, the church at Philippi was what Paul referred to when he's referring to the churches of Macedonia. And he says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. In other words, they were freely willing to give even out of their poverty. They're not a wealthy church, and yet they were giving. How is that possible? How is it possible to reach deep, if you will, and to give with liberality when you are in a state of poverty? Look what he says a chapter later in Second Corinthians. Paul Paul says this, and this is very proverbial language. It's almost like a proverb. He says, "He who speaks, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able... Notice verse 8. This is critical. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now some would read verse 8, and they would say, health and wealth gospel. There it is. You see, if you give, then you're going to be given great funds and you're going to be able to live in a wealthy situation for the rest of your life. Now, I don't have to ask how many of you have heard TV preachers that maybe have said that from time to time. Health and wealth gospel. No, no. That's not quite what Paul has in mind here. He's qualifying what God is doing and how God is doing it. Notice, this is not a health and wealth gospel. Far from it. What Paul is saying is that God is capable and indeed does most often give bountifully to those who purpose to give to the good work of God. Let me say that again. That God is capable... And indeed, most often, most often, proverbial language from a proverb, most often gives bountifully to those who purpose to give to the good works of God. Paul is not suggesting that if you give to God's work, you will be blessed with riches for your own purposes. That's not what he says. He says, instead... If you give bountifully with cheerfulness, then not only will you reap a spiritual harvest, which we see in Galatians 6, but according to 2 Corinthians 9 8, it says that God will entrust you with more because He already knows what you're going to do with it. He already knows that you're going to use it for His purposes. And so you see, we don't give so that our lives can become affluent. That's, not, that's the health and wealth gospel. We give so that when God returns the favor, if you will, and blesses us with abundance, He already knows what we're going to do with it. We're going to give it again. We're going to give it again. God entrusts bountifully. He entrusts abundance to us when we give to His work, cheerfully. And He supplies us to then give again in abundance. Generally true. Generally true. On our bulletin, I don't know if you ever noticed our bulletin. Lloyd Grimm is our treasurer. He gives us a financial report. And uh, if you'll notice in the back of our bulletin, it's always there. I have... I always hesitate to draw attention to funds because we might tend to think, oh, there's the preacher asking for money. And I haven't had to ask for money yet. Arch always said, that's the hardest thing to do as a preacher. But our church is in a little bit of need. We do have a little bit of a a deficit this budget year. And our elders and those who are helping lead the finances of this church are praying that our church will continue to move forward accordingly and that our people will purpose to give and continue to contribute to the work of God because i can assure you that coast bible church is using your funds wisely contributing them to the gospel of jesus christ so if you have not been given or if you have never made it a pattern in your life to tithe i i assure you right now this is precisely what god wants you to do he wants you to contribute to his work he wants you to partner financially in the gospel effort. That is precisely what the Philippians were doing. And Paul says, Oh, it's so much more than just a handout. It is so much more than just a handout. I encourage you to give cheerfully to the work of God. But again, Paul qualifies his statement. Look at verse 17. He says, not that I'm seeking the gift. He says, I'm not seeking the money. I'm not saying this. I'm not telling you that if you you give bountifully, you will be given back so that you can give again just because I want your money. Paul's very clear. Not that I want the gift, he says, but I seek this. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here again is uh, Paul's dialectic. He's He's been bouncing back and forth between, thank you for the gift, I didn't need it and I didn't ask for it. Thank you for the gift. But I'm self-sufficient and I am working in the strength of Christ. So he's bouncing back and forth, if you'll notice, from verses 10 to here, verse 17. But he's doing this very purposefully. He's trying to very delicately indicate to them that it's helpful when you give. I'm not going to be the kind of man, Paul says, that asks for it again and again and again. But you're partnering in the gospel. You're contributing to the work of God. You're contributing to people becoming saved through faith in Christ and moving on to maturity. But he says there's one more reason to give. And he says, I'm seeking that you would... But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account, he says in verse 17. I'm not seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. What is this fruit? Well, he doesn't explain it thoroughly in this text... But from other scriptures in which Paul indicates fruit, usually he is referring to a kind of spiritual blessing. Uh, In this case, I believe Paul is referring to the fruit that will come when we are face to face with Jesus Christ. Currently, you and I have a spiritual account before the Lord. That spiritual account gets deposits in it when we are acting becoming of Christ when we are contributing to the work of Christ, when we are partnering with God in the work of the gospel ministry, when we are laying hold of eternal life and living in the strength that Christ provides, that account receives deposits, in a sense. And one day, when we stand before Jesus Christ, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment in in the New Testament, one day, we will be judged based on our conduct Based on our attitudes, Based on, in some sense, our giving. Based on how we gave. And were we giving with a cheerful heart? Not so much the quantity. All of us are in different life situations, but God is looking for the heart. And Paul is suggesting here that he wants them to give because he knows that in the end, when God looks at their account and that account is withdrawn, they will receive great and everlasting reward with Christ. What is in your spiritual account? What is in your spiritual account? He mentions Epaphroditus in verse 18. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus, your messenger, the things which you sent. And oh, it was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul likens their gift to a sacrifice at the temple. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that kind of language listed repeatedly with respect to a good and proper sacrifice before God. And Paul's saying, your financial partnership, your care for me, was a sweet-smelling aroma, well-pleasing to God. And he will reward you for it. How do we also know that he has in mind that fruit is with respect to eternal rewards? Look at verse 19. And my God shall do what? Shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We supply the physical, God returns riches and glory by means of Christ the great and mighty judge on the last day. Verse 20. Now we come to the conclusion. Paul says this, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is a very typical benediction. If any of you are familiar with other epistles, letters in the New Testament, um, this this would be very, very standard. What Paul's doing here is he's blessing God, he's sending greetings, and he's asking for the blessing of God upon his recipients. The first, verse 20, he's blessing God. He's saying, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be done that God receives glory. Let it be done that God in all things receives the glory. 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. He's expressing unity here in the body. He's saying, hey, we're in this together. I send greetings to you and my companions who are with me. Timothy, perhaps Luke, also send their greetings to you. But notice this, especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now what in the world does he mean there? Caesar's household. What might this? Who might these companions have been that were sending their greetings to the church at Philippi? Well, some suggest if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, you'll notice Paul refers to the palace guard. The praetorium. The ones who were guarding him while he was in chains and they were receiving instruction and benefit from Paul's ministry. I don't have it up on screen, but listen to this. It says in verse 12, "...but I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ." So, the Gospel was ascending in the ranks, if you will, of the Roman people. It was, it was being spread even to the household of Caesar. To Caesar's own guards. And Paul indicates that most likely these guard, some of these guards were saved. And so they were sending greeting back to a church that they had probably never met. In all of this... Paul says this is so much more than a handout. This is so much more than temporary relief. What you have done, Philippians, has lasting significance. And I appreciate your gift, both financially, which is important, but also your care and concern for me in sending your messenger to me to minister to me in my time of need. How can we learn from our final study here in the book of Philippians? I have two applications. The first is this. Regardless of your life circumstance, regardless of your life circumstance, find self-sufficiency in Jesus Christ. That is to say, accept and cope with anything that happens to you by living in the strength that Christ provides. That is a difficult thing to do. It is not easy to cope and to accept circumstances in our life when... They're extremely troublesome. Perhaps financially we're in a bind. Paul says, Accept it and cope with it, knowing that the strength of Christ is upon you. Perhaps you're in a conflict with your spouse or your family. Paul says, Accept and cope with it in the strength that Christ provides. Whatever the circumstance, Recognize that in your time of weakness, Christ is most evidently with you. And two, give bountifully and cheerfully to God's work. God is capable and apt to entrust you with more when He knows how you use your resources. That is very true. He is capable and apt. He's more likely than not to entrust you with more when He knows what you're going to do with it. When He can... Have confidence that your gifts that you have already given, if He returns abundance back to you, you're going to do the same thing again. We don't preach a gospel of health and wealth. It's not about our lifestyle. It's about contributing to the work of God. And I wanted to offer one final application. A few things here that conclude our study in this book. I I, I found four particular points that I thought were overarching themes that I wanted to leave us with. The first is this. Participate in the gospel. Financially, participate in the gospel, but also using other resources. Your your person, jump into ministry. Participate in the work of God. If you are not participating, Paul says "You're, you're not being a contributing member to the body. We need to participate in the gospel. All of us. Every one of us has a role to play. Secondly, Foster unity in the church. So this is critical. Paul says, in whatever the circumstance, make sure that unity is your number one focus. Back in chapter three, we, or back in the early part of chapter four, we saw two women fighting. Yodia and Syntyche were their names. Paul says, do whatever it takes to resolve this conflict. He uses language at the end of chapter two, in which he says that Epaphroditus was longing for you, Philippians. And we we spent time studying that he only used that phrase because Paul was desiring to foster unity in the church. He wanted to let them know that Epaphroditus was longing for his church family. Whatever it takes, foster unity in the church. Three, put on the humility of Christ. A key theme of chapter 2, but also throughout the book. We need to show a humble spirit, acting, becoming of our Savior Jesus Christ. And finally, live, I I almost use the word seize, uh, but but live the resurrection life now. Lay hold of it now, Paul says, which is a critical theme of the middle of chapter 3. He says we must lay hold of the resurrection life in the here and now. We must live in the strength that Christ provides according to the Spirit of God and worship and serve according to the Spirit of God. I trust that we've all benefited from this study in Philippians. I know, I know I have learned a great deal, and it's been very instrumental in my own life. And so I want to thank you for sorting through this, this text verse by verse. I think it was a good study. And I pray that it would grow us up into the image of Jesus Christ, who is exactly who we want to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. In it, you give us your truth. You give us enough advice for each day, Father, as we read it. Just a daily dose of your word, Father, is is sufficient to revive our spirit and to remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ and who we are to, and what we are to act like and in what manner we are to act and to speak. Father, our study today, we've learned that partnering in the gospel effort, both financially and participating in our, in, our, in our very person, is so much more than a handout. So much more than temporary relief. And we pray, Father, that, I, I pray especially, that, number one, our, our people, we would all together participate in the gospel that we would secondly meet needs. We have a need right now, uh, children's teachers. Our children's director is, has, has had to shut down a ministry for a time because we, we have needs, Father. And I pray right now that you would meet that need. I pray that uh, someone uh, would would rise to the, the challenge and participate and contribute to the body if they are not already doing so. But, Father, moreover, we've learned so many more things. We've, we see the humility of Christ that we are to mimic. We see the unity that we are to develop. develop. We see You teaching us through this book, Father, that we are to lay hold of our eternal life. Positionally, we are eternally saved. And yet, experientially, Father, You call us to lay hold of that life, to live in it, to rely on Christ who is in us. pray that all of these things would resonate in our hearts. Thank You for this special time in Your Word.